If you would now, turn to, well, you're already there, hopefully, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, Paul lays out a command here in, um, in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. But to fully grasp and understand exactly what Paul is directing us to with this command, we really need to focus upon a reality, a common reality for all mankind. The best way I know to illustrate that is to go back to the Old Testament. So flip back, if you will, because I want you all to see this. Flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, as you're turning there, let me remind you what has occurred in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the chapter where David, the king, is home at his palace while his army and the ark of God are out Uh, battling their enemies. And while David is home, where he should not be at the time, he sees a woman named Bathsheba. He ends up having an affair with Bathsheba. As a result of that, Bathsheba notifies him that she is pregnant. And so David begins an ordeal to try and cover and hide his sin. Uh, The first thing he does is he sends to his generals and says, send me Uriah the Hittite. That would be the husband of Bathsheba. So Uriah shows up and gives a report of how the campaign is going. And then David said, great, go home. Go, go, Go see your wife. Uriah does not go home. He sleeps outside the king's door. And the next day, David says, why did you not go home? And um, Uriah says, well, the army's there and the ark of God is there. Why in the world should I go home? So David moves to plan B. He has Uriah over for dinner, gives him quite a bit of wine. Uriah's a bit drunk. And David then thinks he'll go home to his wife. He does not. He again sleeps in front of the king's door. So now David moves to plan C. Plan C is Uriah carries with him back to the front instructions for Uriah to be put in the fiercest part of the battle and then other men step back and allow Uriah to be killed. That's exactly what occurs. Bathsheba goes into mourning. David marries her. She bears him a son. And now we come to chapter 12. Look with me in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up 
And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. David angrily denounces the sin of a fictional character while not realizing and recognizing his own sin. David has let himself be deceived. David's sin has so twisted his thinking that he doesn't connect himself to the man in Nathan's story. He doesn't see any connection between his behavior and the rich man's behavior in the story. Now, what this reminds us of is the reality that sin deceives. You can actually jump all the way back to Genesis and you can look at the beginning. You can look at, at, at Eve and, and Adam and Satan comes and what does he do? Well, he lies about God. He, he tempts Eve. God's not good. God really doesn't have your back. God doesn't care for you. As a matter of fact, God's, God's withholding good things from you. And, and Eve buys into these lies and then she trusts her own perspective and she ends up breaking God's law and bringing all of humanity into sin. Sin deceives. Now, Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with believers that, that he's pastored. He most scholars believe Paul stayed with the Corinthians about a year and a half and he genuinely loves these people but it's been given him a report that there's divisions among them. Jump back to chapter one and um, look at verse uh, 10. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. The Corinthian believers have been deceived by sin, and this is creating divisions among them, and they're, they're, they're grouping themselves uh, by certain people, and they're following of those people. Now, we have to be careful that we don't look back reading Corinthians and go with some disdain, how silly of those Corinthians. Why in the world would they do that? My brother and my sister in Christ, we need to with humility not have disdain for them, but with humility say, where is sin deceiving me? Where, where am I allowing sin to twist me so that I don't recognize how I'm acting or how I'm responding or what I'm thinking or how I'm behaving? Uh, we're, we're no better than the Corinthian believers. Paul 
Paul comes to this command as he's dealing. He really deals with this division all the way through parts of chapter 4. And he comes to this command, let no one deceive himself. And then if you notice in the text, he really contrasts non-believers with true believers. The problem is the Corinthian believers have allowed themselves to be deceived by following worldly wisdom. And Paul, in essence, says, let no one be deceived. Follow godly truth, true wisdom. In essence, what Paul is saying is, because God himself defines true wisdom, we must make sure that we are not deceived and operating out of worldly wisdom. We need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, where am I allowing sin or where am I allowing worldly wisdom to begin to direct my perspective and my behavior and my action? Where have I allowed myself to be deceived? And we need to make sure that we are rather operating out of true wisdom, God's mindset, God's view, God's truth. Now what I want to do this morning is I really want to tease out three points of true wisdom that Paul identifies in chapter 3 as he's making his argument and then finally comes to this command in verse 18. Now to organize these three points of true wisdom, I've, I've organized them around questions. So I want to present three questions and then draw out of the text the true wisdom to each of those questions. So your job is by the power of the Holy Spirit to allow God's truth to search us and shape us and see where potentially we've been operating out of worldly wisdom and let us abandon that and let us grab hold of true wisdom. Let no one be deceived. All right, the first question is this. Who are we? Worldly wisdom would basically say, I'm the captain of my own ship. I decide. I make rules. I determine. That's what worldly wisdom would, would, would present to us. True wisdom would say this. I'm a creature of God, redeemed by God, so that I can serve God. Look back in chapter three, look in verse five. Look at some of Paul's argument here that he's making with the Corinthian believers. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul and Apollos are identified as servants of 
God, who's the one who orchestrated and directed and established all things, and and God's the power behind anything that is accomplished. I love meditating upon um, the last few chapters of Job. You know, the first 37 chapters, um, it's Job and his friends in dialogue. But then in chapter 38, God steps in. God basically says, um, dress like action for a man. I'm going to ask you some questions and you see if you can answer them. And then God goes on for quite a time going, where were you when I? Do you understand? Have you seen? He asks all these questions of Job. And listen, not to turn there, but listen to Job's response in Job 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then God repeats it. He says, Dress. Prepare for action like a man. And he asks all these questions again. And then Job responds again. I had heard of you, but now I've seen you with my eyes. God became bigger and grander and more majestic because of, God became that way to Job because Job realized he was a creature redeemed by God so that he can serve God. So who are you? Do you you walk around, you probably don't say it, because, you know, that's kind of an odd saying, but do you walk around with a mindset that says, I am the captain of my own ship? I decide, I determine, I say. Or do you walk around recognizing as true wisdom would have us that I'm a creature of God? And you can go back to the text and notice he said that Paul and Apollos are servants through whom you believed. What is he referencing there? Well, he's referencing they believed the message they were proclaiming. They believed in the redemption offered by the shed blood of Christ. Do you recognize that you're a creature of God? that has been redeemed. What we deserve is God's wrath, full stop. What we receive is God's grace and full and complete forgiveness, full redemption in Christ so that we can be restored to right relationship with our maker and serve him. Apollos was redeemed by Christ and so served God. Paul was redeemed by Christ and so served God. Cephas, or Peter, he was redeemed by Christ and so he could serve God. So fill in the blank of whatever role or position or however our culture defines you. You know, you could, you could say things two different ways. You could say, well, I'm a doctor. That's worldly wisdom. True wisdom would say, I'm a doctor, redeemed by God, so I serve God. 
I'm a banker, redeemed by the blood of Christ, so I can once again serve God. I'm a mother, redeemed by Christ, so that I can serve God. I'm a student, redeemed by Christ, so once again, I can serve God. True wisdom drives us to God to provide all of our value in life. Do you recognize that you are a creature who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ so that you can serve God? Are you redeemed? Are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ to pay for your offense against God? Who are you? That was the first question. Second question, what matters most in life? Worldly wisdom would answer that question this way, something like, the one with the most toys wins. My things and my experiences and all that I accumulate here provide everything I need. True wisdom says eternity is of most importance. The now, even all the good things in the now is merely a vapor. Again, look back at Paul's argument. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will, it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, many people like to look at this particular passage and they get all caught up in the question, are we actually getting you know, crown, uh, uh, jewels in our crown? And I don't wanna go there today, that's not the point. The point is, what matters most? What matters most is eternity. What matters most is how are you building on the foundation of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is driving home here. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not that we need to gather and, and glean a whole bunch of toys. It's eternity. How am I using what God has granted me for eternity? There's a parable in Luke, the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story. There's a rich man and there's a poor beggar outside his house. They both die. The poor man, Lazarus, is in Abraham's bosom. The rich man is in Hades. And he's tormented and he cries out to Abraham, please send Lazarus, just let him put a drop on my tongue. And Abraham responds this way. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Everything has eternal ramifications. 
Where has God gifted you? Are you using those gifts for something of significance, of eternal significance? How how has he positioned you? How has he granted you power? You know, power comes in so many different shapes and sizes. There's positional power. Do you have a position of power? Are you using that position for eternity? There's, There's intelligence. That's a form of power. Are you using your intelligence for eternity? Beauty is a form of power. Relational capital is a form of power. Finances are a form of power. What has God granted you and are you operating out of true wisdom and are you using everything that God has granted you with an eye cut toward heaven, with eternity in mind? So the first question was, who are you? The second question was, what matters most? The third question is how are we as believers, how are we related? Well, worldly wisdom says, I'm different. I look different. I worship different. Worldly wisdom sees all the difference. True wisdom recognizes that we are all interconnected through Christ. We are all in Christ. Again, look back at the text. Look at verse 16. Look at what uh, Paul says. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, it doesn't come across in the English as well, but in the Greek, all of those yous are plural. So in essence, we should read... Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? Do you realize that for everyone in this room or watching, that everyone who is trusting in the work of Christ, everyone who is in Christ, God's spirit dwells in you. And every single one of us different though that we are, individual though that we are, are all part of God's temple. We are God's temple. In my role for years here at Grace Savannah as a missions pastor, I had the chance to travel many places. And um, one of those continents that I went to was Africa. And, and certainly I was in Ghana, I was in Kenya, I was in Ethiopia, and there's a lot of difference. But it's amazing to me how connected you can be with people that really, to be quite frank, are strangers. I don't know them hardly at all. But in Christ, there is this bond and this connection and this unity that goes beyond anything that we could really imagine. How we treat each other is important. We need to understand that we are connected by Christ, that we are all in Christ. And so there ought to be a unifying rally around Christ. Yeah, we're going to have some different opinions and different tastes and different ideas, but in Christ, 
the, the commonality is so beyond what the differences are. Do we operate out of that true wisdom and do we in unison serve our king and work together? May God lead us away from deception and into true wisdom. Father, we do commit ourselves to you. We do recognize humbly that we, like our Corinthian brothers and sisters that, that were written about here, we can be deceived, Father. Oh, by the power of your Spirit, would you use your word to pierce us and show us and shape us. Father, where we have grabbed hold of worldly wisdom, where we are operating out of worldly wisdom, where we have allowed ourselves to be deceived, would you convict us and would you begin to renew our thinking so that we operate out of true wisdom for your name's sake. We ask this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen.